Hosea's, uh, Hosea chapter 5, Israel's apostasy further explained. Verse 1, Hear this, O priests, give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. For you have been a snare at Mitzpah, and a net spread out on Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm at Beth Aven. Behind you, Benjamin, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them, I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jared. But he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away, and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Amen. The prophet Hosea continues his rebuke of the sins of the people, and in verse 1, he encompasses everyone. He traps all of them or holds them all guilty. He says, hear this, O priests, those who preach, those who teach, those who know the law, those who carry out the rituals of the temple. He is indicting them. Give heed, O house of Israel. That is the northern kingdom and perhaps even all the nation, all 12 tribes, because throughout this chapter, he mentions Judah a few times. Perhaps he has every tribe in mind. And also, listen, O house of the king, the king where they ought to also know better and rule in righteousness and justice and set an example for the people. He indicts all the people and the religious class and the ruling class. He indicts them all because they should know better, but they don't do better. For the judgment applies to you. He's judging them all. Uh, For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. These here are 
places of sin, where they carry out their sin, on the mountaintops, in strategic places, they set a snare and a trap for themselves and for each other. Verse 2, And the revolters have gone deep in depravity. These people are now described as revolters. Against whom are they revolting? God. God himself who gave his word to them, his holy word. Instead of practicing holiness, they go deep in depravity, deep in corruption, deep in filth and moral degradation. This is what they do. They hate God and they go deep into their sin. But I will chastise all of them. God is going to get his way. He's going to afflict them, punish them. He's going to chastise all of them. No, nobody's going to escape. People think they can escape the judgment of God, sometimes because of their position, whether they are in a high position or low position. No, God's only going to punish those in high places. Or God's only going to punish the poor, not me, because I'm strong and rich. I've always been pampered, and I will continue to be pampered, even before God. No, it doesn't matter who you are. All will be chastised, punished, disciplined. Three, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim is often a synonym for the northern kingdom Israel. And sometimes Ephraim is separated as the biggest tribe in the northern kingdom in terms of land size and even population because in the book of Genesis, Genesis 48, Jacob did bless Ephraim with tens, ten thousands. He said thousands for Manasseh and ten thousands for Ephraim. So not only in terms of territory, but in terms of population, Ephraim was the dominant northern tribe. But God knows who they are. Nothing escapes his notice. They're not hidden from him. They might do things in secret. They, they might have dark and dingy places where they carry out their sins, but God knows all of it. You can't hide it from him. The eyes of the Lord move, move to and fro, Throughout the earth, seeking those whose hearts are completely his. Second Chronicles sixteen seven. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. This harlotry, prostitution, is spiritual prostitution, and Ephraim has done so. Though they were the most influential, they influenced others to practice spiritual prostitution, harlotry. And they have polluted themselves or defiled themselves. Instead of setting an example for good, they set an example for evil. And they depart from their lawful and rightful husband, God himself. And they follow <coughs> other lovers who don't really love them. Yet they are called lovers. Verse 4. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry is within them and they do not know the Lord. It's their deeds that prevent them from repentance. To return means to repent. Their deeds prohibit them from repentance. Why? Because their deeds blind them. Their deeds entrap them. Their deeds consume them. Their deeds, evil deeds. They are so 
pleasure-filled that they can't fathom giving up all of their delights and pleasures while they practice evil. They can't fathom it. So their deeds, their evil deeds, prevent them, disallow them from returning to God. And what is it that overcame them? A spirit of harlotry. A spirit of harlotry overcame them, is is within them. The world, the flesh, and the devil. But here in the unseen world, the spirit, the world of the spirit, invisible world, spirits entice and entangle us and consume us to pursue sin. They do not know the Lord. Their fundamental problem is lack of the knowledge of God, which is what Hosea said in chapter 4, verse 1. They lack the knowledge of God in the land. Chapter 4, verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Chapter 6, verse 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. They don't know the Lord. They know themselves. They know whatever other things they pursue, but they don't know the Lord. They are experts in their sins, but they're not an expert in the knowledge of God, by the word of God. Verse 5, Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. Their pride witnesses or testifies against them. How? Because it displays itself. Pride, though it starts in the heart, it manifests itself in the head, in the hand, in the feet, in the words. It manifests itself, and once it is exposed, pride shows the sinfulness of sin or the shamefulness of their sin that they refuse to give up. As it says in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, it says, 10.3, Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking and demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. Well, how does he do so? Or what motivates him to demonstrate his folly publicly? Well, it's his pride. And once the pride manifests itself in folly, then it testifies against him. It makes it obvious that he is a fool who refuses to follow God. So they stumble in their iniquity, and Judah stumbles with them. Israel and Ephraim in the north, they lead the way, and Judah follows along. Instead of saying, no, I refuse, I resist, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I will not walk as you walk. I will not do as you do. Instead, they say, how can I learn from them? I want to do the same as they do. That's Judah's approach. Verse 6, they will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They will go to sacrifice to God, But God's going to reject their sacrifices. 
Now we're back to Amos 5, 21 to 24, Isaiah 1, 15, or even Hosea 6, 6. This one is an easy one to remember because of the reference. Hosea 6, 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. When they come with their religiosity, when they come with their rituals, when they come with their sacrifices, God says, I don't want them. They're no good. I want true knowledge of me. You're not going to find me by practicing sin and then pretending when you come to the temple with your sacrifices. Don't pretend with me. I have withdrawn from you. I have nothing to do with you. Verse 7. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. This, um, in verse 7, dealing treacherously is as a phrase used, for example, in Malachi chapter 2, 2, 14 to 16, when a husband deals treacherously with his wife. That is, he breaks the vow or breaks the covenant. In the same way here, from the picture established in chapter 1 of Hosea, 1 to 3, they have dealt treacherously, they as the wife, as the nation, the wife of the Lord, the bride of Christ, um, in that picture, the bride is not supposed to transgress the covenant, but maintain the covenant, be faithful to it. If transgression occurs, treachery occurs. And when treachery occurs, illegitimate children are born. Illegitimate children are born. That's not a word that people like to use these days. Actually, even people have gotten away from the word bastard. Bastard, there are a few modern translations that still use that word, such as in Hebrews chapter 12. They still use that word. So it's not an old, outdated word. It's a word that has fallen into disuse because of the shame associated with it. And because so many people are that way. So people don't use that word. They don't even use the word illegitimate children. They don't even use that. They use all kinds of other words or euphemisms or circuitous terms to just refer to children. That's it. They don't say illegitimate even. But spiritually speaking, if we don't follow the Lord, then we are offspring of a foreign god, an idol, and we are illegitimate. We might call ourselves children of God, but we're not children of God. We're illegitimate. The new moon will devour them with their land. Usually the hot sun, he's, he's using um, hyperbole here, but the, usually it's the hot sun that devours the land when there's no rain. But here, the new moon, the full moon, that's what's going to devour them. It's going to be that bad for them. They're going to be that desperate. Verse 8, and how will that come also? By war. Verse 8, not only drought, but war. Verse 8, 
Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm at Beth Aven. Behind you, Benjamin. The horn was blown for various purposes. It was, for one of the main purposes, it was blown to signal, to warn the people in the city that the enemy is approaching. This is for the sound of war, to alert them with the certain signal of the trumpet that war is coming. The troops are approaching. The battle needs to begin. Get ready. Gibeah and Ramah are hill stations. They are on, on hills, and it would be natural for a watchman or the trumpeter to go there to warn everybody so everyone could, could know about this alarm. Beth-Aven is Bethel, Bethel also um, elevated. And Beth-Aven, remember we said from the earlier reference to it in chapter 4, verse 15, that it is Hosea's way of showing the guilt and shame of the city Bethel. Bethel means house of God. Jacob in Genesis 28 and 35 named it this or went to it, referred to it as Bethel. He changed the name of the city. But Hosea has changed it also by giving an ignoble, dishonorable name to it, house of iniquity, Aven. It's not the house of God anymore. It's the house of iniquity. He's renamed it as such. And Benjamin, though they were valorous men in Benjamin, we could see this from the last couple of chapters of the book of Judges. They had very skillful warriors. Even the first king of Israel, King Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. They were great warriors. However, Benjamin's going to have to be warned that the enemy's behind you. You were looking in that direction, but watch out. They're behind you and they're about to ambush you and they're going to be victorious. Verse 9, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke among the tribes of Israel. I declare what is sure. Ephraim is going to be completely destroyed. And remember, the history of this actual destruction is recorded in 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17 records the fall of Ephraim or Israel, the northern kingdom. And the fall of Judah, the southern kingdom, is recorded in 2 Kings 24 to 25. It is God's word among all the people or all the men in all of the tribes of Israel whose word is sure. It's stable. It's reliable. It's the word that everybody should pay attention to. They should pay attention to his word not man's word, according to verse 11. 10. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. The princes of Judah, these who already have wealth, already have power, already have prestige, already have plenty, whatever they want, they are so audacious and covetous, 
that they move boundary marks to steal property. They move boundary marks to steal property. Deuteronomy 27, 17. 27, 17. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. There's a curse on people who do that, who would steal someone else's land. And that's what they've done here. They stole their countrymen's land, and God will send foreigners to steal their land. That's how the Lord works. On them, I will pour out my wrath like water. When water is poured out over someone or a surface, if it's in abundance, the surface can't do anything anything to resist. The person can't do anything to resist. It's going to be completely overwhelming to those who receive the outpouring of God's water-like wrath. Verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he has determined to follow man's command. 11, their oppression and their crushed stature in judgment. Why? Completely wiped out, completely annihilated, not able to withstand any power of the enemy. Why is all this happening? Because Ephraim, the nation, was determined to follow man's command. Why is it that people are so obsessed in following man's command? Why is it that they don't ask, what does the Lord say? I know who you are, but I want to know what the Lord says. Let's go seek the Lord together. They didn't have that practice, and because of that, they followed the traditions of men, the traditions of the elders. Of course, every generation has to learn this. Hosea's generation did not learn it, and neither did the generation of Jesus Christ, because the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, they also followed man's command. That's why Christ and later the apostles rebuked them for following the traditions of men. They were obsessed with it. But that obsession leads to oppression. Verse 12, Therefore I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. Sometimes God uses analogies to describe himself that we would not fathom. We would not think of these analogies, but God does. We know how we don't like moths in our wardrobe, right? We don't like them in our closets because if we have moths in our closets, they're going to consume our clothing. They're going to put holes in them, right? We don't like that. So a moth is not usually a, a happy and pleasant insect that we think of. They, they don't do anything beneficial to us, at least obviously beneficial, evidently beneficial. We could say, well, bees, they, they could make honey. But moths, what do they do but destroy? What God describes him that way. He describes himself that way in that he's a destroyer or a punisher and he takes away their wealth. 
in their clothing. He takes it away. And then rottenness to the house of Judah. Now he's describing himself as something rotten. Because that which is rotten, it's, it's too late. And that which is rotten begins to rot the rest of the fruit, right? If a fruit starts to get rotten, it, if you don't stop it quickly, it's going to rot the whole thing. And then who wants to eat it? Nobody. God's the same way. He's out to destroy them because they are rotten fruit in the core. He's going to make sure they are destroyed. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb, but he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. Ephraim and Judah, northern and southern kingdoms, they see their problems, their sickness and their wounds. They see them, but instead of repentance, they reach out, they go to the king of Assyria for help. Instead of going to the Lord, the king of kings, they go to the king of Assyria. They go to the wrong place to seek for help. But he can't help you, he says. He is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. He cannot help you. Idols and those who worship idols cannot help. So don't seek them. It says here, King Jareb. This may also be another play on words by Hosea the prophet. The word Jareb, you may have a footnote on this, it may say something like the avenging king, the contending king, or the great king. Well, it's true in all of these cases, in the sense that, that the Hebrew word could be rendered in one of those ways. If he's given a proper name, like Jareb, King Jareb, then he's given a proper name to a king who is going to avenge. They want him to help, but he's actually going to avenge and later come and destroy your land. Or if we render it, the contending king, the striving king, that king that they sought to help them is going to now come and fight against them, to contend against them. He cannot help. Or if it's the great king, he is great in that he's powerful. They wanted his power to help them but he's going to use his power to afflict them and oppress them, destroy them all. However we render it, it makes sense in the context, whether to render it as a proper name or as a common noun in any one of those ways, we know what Hosea means. He's not going to help you. He's going to harm you. Verse 14, not only will the king harm, God is harming them. 14, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. The scripture compares God to a lion here. We saw this from Hosea chapter 3. This is not unusual for the scripture to do so, to compare God to a lion. Even in Hosea 13, 7, he says, Hosea 13, 7, So I will be 
like a lion to them, like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. Hosea 13, 7 and 8. The most famous example of God compared to a lion is Christ himself. Revelation 5, 5. The lion from the tribe of Judah. He is powerful and he is able to conquer whatever prey he wants to devour. No one is able to resist the almighty power of God. He's going to take us as animals and carry us away after the lion has um, put his jaws on the neck of the prey and rendered it helpless and hopeless, it'll carry it away. God's that way. 15. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. We saw in verse 6, we saw in verse 6 a fake repentance, a fake search for God. In verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6, they will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. God withdraws from those who are practicing sin, and in this case, he's not even going to come to them or draw near to them when they draw near to him in their fake worship and repentance. But in 15, he is likely talking about true repentance in 15. In 15, he also goes away and lets the people wallow in their sin for a while. Let the consequences of their sin overtake them. This is what he means. He's going to keep his distance from them until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Once they have been sufficiently punished, then they will seek God. Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, he describes the sins of the people and how he will punish them and scatter them throughout the world, which he did eventually, more than once. And then in verse 29, the repentance. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, and 30, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Deuteronomy 4, 29, 31. Hosea says, you have to be in your misery for a while before you recognize your need to repent and seek me. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.